Hello everybody and welcome to this special episode of Media Voices Conversations in partnership with United Robots. Over the past couple of years, we've seen publishers from national to local level make the most of robot journalism, using it to fuel the rest of their editorial content and deliver value back to the business in its own right. But is there more that we can be doing with automated content and robot journalism? And how far can it propel us when we're seeking to minimize costs but deliver value back to the audiences? Well, to discuss all that and more, and do a little bit of myth-busting as well, I'm joined by Cecilia Campbell of United Robots and Ardbor, who is the Sport Product Manager at NDC Media Group. So United Robots uh, provide automated content for newsrooms. Uh, we've been running since 2015, um, and uh, so we have actually done this for a few years now. Mm. And I would say there are two main things that you kind of want to know about us compared to the competition. One thing is that, that we have our roots in journalism and it was founded by journalists and our first client was a Swedish local media group. And the other thing is that um, um, we actually provide content. Um, so we don't provide the tech. We build the tech and we use it for you, but we actually mm. send the automated content to publishers. So it's a service. Uh, of It's like an extension to the news desk, you could say. Yeah, another, the robot is another reporter. Well, uh, my name is Arbour. I used to work for about a decade in the music industry, already experimenting with uh, AI and stuff. And now for three years, I work with NDC Media Group, which is a regional publisher in the north of the Netherlands. We cover about three provinces and about 1.5 million people nice. with two major uh, daily newspapers. And my role is uh, I'm a product manager sports and uh, my job is to uh, market everything we do with sports and come up with new creative ideas to uh, to, to uh, come up with the best thing to uh, offer to our readers about sports and anything. And that's why we're always looking into new technology and new ideas to uh, to explore. Nice. Fantastic. Well, between the two of you, then I know we're going to have a very... Uh, in-depth discussion then about what robot journalism is in 2021 and what it can actually offer to the publications who are going to be listening. So Cecilia, then just leaping off that, I wondered if you could take us through what robot journalism actually looks like now, because I know that many of our listeners will have heard about it for you know years and years now, but I know that it's changed a lot over the past couple of years. So how much more sophisticated is it than than some of our listeners might be familiar with? Uh, I think robot journalism has become a reality now. That is what I would say. It, it was when we started out, it was a lot about testing uh, and trying it out. Um, I mean, our first customer was uh, Media in Sweden. Mm. Um, and they were really like in an, they had gone all in with the digital uh, transformation. I mean, we're in 2015 now. Uh, and they had a very much a mindset of innovation. So they like they wanted to test new technology. Um, but I think they also saw like there was an opportunity to cover things that they really didn't have the like the resources mm. to cover uh, in the newsroom uh, so of course sweden being sweden sports was the first <laughs> one right i think it was even bandy which is like this uh, obscure uh, sport played on ice i'll say no more um, <laughs> and so, so they, they automated a bandy uh, they built a bandy robot and started you know like writing about many more matches than they had been able to cover uh, using uh, journalists before um, and then the next step was that they um, uh, they discovered that they had they, they started analyzing how people were using and this was part of the bigger digital project. Mm. They started analyzing how people were consuming content on the site. 
And they saw that there was huge interest in uh, stories about individual house sales. Like people loved uh, reading about what was, you know, the houses sold in the village. I mean, this is the north of Sweden. It's quite spread out geographically. Yeah. Um, but they were only able to write about two stories a month, you know, with, with reporters. That was all they, they had time for. So they thought, well, we could build a robot around this. And so that was robot number two. And it went up to about f- almost 500 stories a week instead. A huge increase. That's insane. It, I know. And of course, they, they were able to, they had the platform behind it so they could distribute the right content to the right village, basically, to the nice. right reader. So people were reading about their neighbors and it really drove up engagement. Um, and that is like, that's in, in Scandinavia, that's the reality of robot journalism now, mm. uh, which is, I think, slightly different than how people think about it in many other markets, I would say. You, you need to look at the two sort of, there are two main benefits of robots. It's like the volume mm. um, and it's the consistency and regularity. And that's something that like Olympics, yeah, they happen for two weeks and then that's over. But this is actually something that, uh, you know, this is data that comes in every week or every month or whatever. And so the publisher knows this is going to be there and it forms like part of the the service to the local readers. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. It, it really is kind of the, um, kind of the realization of that aspect of service journalism, which is providing relevant yeah. information just kind of as and when people need it. So Arden, why is, say, sport a really good use case for kind of robot journalism of that kind? And, you know, Cecilia was just talking about engagement there and nothing really engages quite like sport at a local level. Well, uh, there's lots of reasons. I think uh, sports is is one of the uh, types of news that has really good structured data Mm. because there's so much data collection around sports in terms of goal scorers, matches, places where the matches took place, whatever. And it's organized really well. So... Uh, what people are used to right now is looking at uh, league tables and results lists and, uh, and and whatnot to discover about what happened to their team that they're interested in. Mm. And uh, what we can do with robot journalism now is to uh, to make it easier for people so they don't have to go to the league table and find out, well, they are now ranked C, what is it? It's eighth, okay, last week they were third, oh, what happened? <laughs> no, we can do that for them in a nice, well-written uh, article of, say, five to ten sentences, and that that's like a convenience uh, for our readers, which is really good. And we can do it really fast, and it's way more fun to read about your favorite team than to puzzle your way around league tables. Yes, yeah, certainly. So uh, it's... As much as is it, uh, you know, a useful benefit for those for the for the readers as well. I suppose that the speed of it, given that you know the data around sport is so well structured, is actually a real boon for the journalists as well, having all that kind of at their fingertips and ready to go. Exactly, but the, the speed is also already there in the league tables. Mm. But mm. to to do this so fast in a written article and to connect all the dots for for people who are in, uh, who don't know much about the team or are, are not. That following it that that well that, that helps a lot, and you can do it really fast. Mm. And it's also not the most interesting stuff to do for a sports journalist. They know what the result of the game. They know what the league table uh, uh, standing is for 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 a team. They know uh, uh, what's happening next week or where they're playing. So the robot can do that for them. So the journalist can do the uh, actual uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, that kind of analysis. I, I've spoken to a couple of the uh, financial journalists as well who basically said that it's been a godsend for them because it allows them to actually dig into the kind of the story behind the data as well. So uh, mm-hmm. so I suppose then that what we should do is a little bit of um, almost 
a bit of myth busting, almost a, a bit of a, an explosion of these collective myths that people still sometimes have around robot journalism. I remember covering a conference, it must have been five, six years ago, where people were just like, well, you know, the, the robots are coming for journalists' jobs, which is obviously not the case. It's, if anything, it's allowed journalists, kind of human journalists, to, to do their jobs better. Uh, well, I think that's one, that one is a, a big one still. I mean, still, we get that question a little bit less now <laughs> than we did before the pandemic Good. started, but it still happens. Um, and um, I think saying that robots steal journalists' lo- jobs is just like <laughs> the wrong way around to look at it. Yeah. Um, because it's not about stealing jobs. It's actually about news, like I said before, news publishers improving their offer. Uh, and actually securing the business, you know, like if you can, ha- if you can offer better journalism, obviously you have a better chance at a future. Mm. Um, uh, I'm not going to say that there never has been a single ju- uh, freelancer who hasn't lost a gig because of a robot. Uh, I mean, certainly with match reports in the north of Sweden, yes, mm. that's been true. But uh, for the majority of uh, the publishers that we work with, um, the robots are like a, they're part of the, like a strategy to grow the business and improve the business. Um, we have, for example, uh, Gota Media, who, which is a, quite a small local media group in Sweden, about 11 newspapers. Um, and they have actually, in parallel with, with deploying robots to cover all the local communities and the news deserts, they have actually hired 25 new journalists. Mm. And it's all part of like, yeah, okay, you know, a better digital subscription offer. Uh, and I, I, I know in the UK, uh, reader revenues are not s- as big of a deal as it is in Scandinavia. But I still think, y- you know, you, you have to prove that you provide value if you're going to survive as a local media outlet, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, even with like the U- we work with a couple of uh, we're very early stages with some US local media groups. And they are not the ones that are owned by VCs who are there to cut using robots to cut costs. They are actually media groups who are investing, you know, in, in mm. local journalism. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that is definitely um, a bit of a myth. It's, yeah, it's one that, you know, you, you always hear coming up. I almost wonder if people bring it up now as, as, you know, just to say something about robot journalism because they don't actually necessarily understand how it's being used within the newsroom. So it's good to hear that, like you said, over the course of the pandemic, people are, People are slightly more open to the idea that it's just a tool for journalism in a lot yeah. of ways. And, and I so- mean, cer- certainly uh, with uh, journalists that work with robots, and, mm. and we did sort of a mini survey uh, like a year ago or so. And, and once they start working with them, they're all positive because, like Art said before, it takes away that the the like the routine reporting and lets them do more interesting stuff. You know. Yeah, that leads me neatly onto my next question for Art, which is. The, this is presumption, I suppose, that robot journalism is technically difficult to understand, both during kind of the, the learning process and when it's, you know, it being used when it's actually under operation. So to what extent then is is robot journalism actually implementing it into the newsroom and getting your kind of your sports writers to use it? How how difficult actually is it to, to do now? I think I think the most difficult part about uh, getting your news organization to use automated content is 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 explaining the concept of automated content to your to your colleagues mm. because mm. most journalists they are they're not that tech savvy at least not for a regional publisher like us yeah and and you, yes you get ideas like well are, is it going to take my job and stuff like that and <laughs> one of the, the 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 things that really helped here with this organization is that I could 
tell everybody that we were now able to cover events we would normally never be able to send somebody over to do a report on. And mm. everybody will understand that for a really small uh, football match with only 100 people attending or something, we will never send uh, freelancers out there, but we now are able to report on it and then they will understand. But the, the technical part is not the hard part. The hard part is to... to to to, uh, to get them to, to understand uh, the concept of automated content and to also understand that it is all right to to have a really factual uh, article mm. and you have it really fast in terms of sports, really fast after the game. And then you can follow up as a journalist with, hey, something really weird happened here. This team won with big numbers, which is not in the line of expectation. We have to grab the phone, go over there uh, and see what's, what's really up there. Nice. nice. If you do stuff like that, that helps to get the people involved. But it's a, it's, it's a, quite a job to get everybody on board in your organization, but it, it really works out here. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. And it, it, it's interesting that you said it's almost this, you know, a discovery tool for stories as well, because you can actually look at that data kind of very, very readily. So from your perspective then, Arndt, was it just literally getting people to, to use it and, and really practice it that, that got them to understand it properly? Uh, fortunately, I know a little bit how to code and I, yeah. Uh, yeah. I already uh, have access to the data from, uh, from the Dutch Football Association. We were uh, able to do a really fast pilot project with United Robots. So, and as soon as you can show your colleagues an end product, look, this is the article and it is generated within a minute mm. after the match. And it looks like this. And people don't worry anymore about the technical stuff and how APIs are connected and blah, blah, blah. And, it, and that's all stuff that, that's, that's easy to fix relatively to all the other things you have to do. And, uh, I think getting uh, a pilot project, showing your colleagues on what it's, the end result will be. That makes it really easy or easier uh, to get it across. Nice. And Celia, from your point of view, then, is that is, is actually developing that kind of that, that proof, that use case? Is that something that you, you do a lot of? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, because we, you know, the tech is not really an issue. Mm. Um, it's it's uh, getting the, the publishers to understand what they're going to use it for. Uh, and to to help them with the uh, with the um, the strategy around it and knowing why they're doing it, uh, I think that the, the tech bit that does require some thought from publishers um, more than the actual text is actually it's how you're going to distribute that content when you get it, mm. because you want to make sure you get a lot of a big volume of content. You want to make sure it goes uh, to the right uh, to the right readers. So that's kind of key. Like we had an example here. Uh, recently with um, house sales in Gothenburg, which is Sweden's second city. And they realized there's no point publishing all the house sales to all the areas in Gothenburg. We have to do them a neighborhood basis, you know. So that kind of tech is is more important for the publisher to think about in terms of strategy and stuff. So, yeah, I was going to say it's it's not necessarily about just releasing all this data into the wild. It's about actually building it into your editorial strategy more widely. Absolutely. I mean, you can't, in the early days, of course, you know, it, this was just a cool tech and there were yeah. some companies who, who just tested it and they flooded their sites with all these stories about, uh, you know, Div- uh, Division 5 games or whatever <laughs> it was. And it was just like, this doesn't work. Nobody reads them and nobody can find <laughs> them. And they were all like, but you, so you have to really be clued into what you want to do with it. Uh, and that is, I mean, then you can prove the value. Otherwise, it be, it's hard. If I can go on on that, I think that is that is a main issue because 
if, if you write a story made by humans uh, as a publisher, it, it is always a story that has a relatively big impact because somebody's really going out there writing this story because you know, they, uh, as a publisher, you feel that a lot of people are interested in it. This, but with automated content, you are able to write stories about relatively small events that are not of interest to a lot of people, but the people who are interested mm. about that event are really uh, uh, invested in what's happening there on that certain pitch in the fifth division. And that's not something a publisher are used to working with. So uh, the distributing part is a really important part, I think, uh, uh, like Cecilia said. It's always, it's a bit of a, I always use this story, so it might get old a little bit, but it's about my nephew. He's, uh, he's about 17 years old, plays really high division for youth league, but he'd never be a professional soccer player. Yeah. But I want to know what happens there and I want to know what happens on the pitch. And right now it's really hard for me to go there because I don't know where he's playing. If he's playing, I have to go to the league table, figure out again and which team he already played, stuff like that. And if I just get a news message about his match and the result of the match, what ha- what it means for the league table, if he scored a goal, uh, where he's going to play next week, I might be able to go over there and, uh, and watch the game myself, stuff like that. That is really helpful. And I think as a, as a publisher, it's a really uh, great uh, piece of content to give yeah. to your readers. Yeah. It, it is as well. And it's, it's such a human, it, it's a, you know, kind of very emotive thing to do. And it just so happens to be, you know, creative using this, this automated content to begin with. So that's, I suppose that that, that leads neatly onto this next question then, which is um, one of the myths that I, I've heard, and I think that Cecilia, you did a little bit of myth busting about this in your article was uh, the idea that it's expensive what it delivers. So to what extent then is that still the perception of robot journalism? Um. I think that's probably a perception that's out there. And of course, <laughs> if you're going to set up an internal department to build robots, it will be expensive. <laughs> yeah. You know, that is not, no question about it. But the type of service that we offer, the cost is like, it's constant and it's relatively low because we look after the tech and you know what you're paying for. You're paying for the techs. Um, and plus also, uh, I would say you have to look at this cost then. It's not a one-off. It's a const- uh, the content. It's a constant stream of news that you get every month of the year, mm. which means that you can build a business on that content. Okay. So that moves to something like the value then, uh, that it delivers. If you're saying it's expensive for what it delivers, what does it deliver? And that's also not an absolute. Like I said before, it depends on the strategy you're using. So, like with Meet Media, it was part of uh, the complete local paid content offering. And because they could cover all the local uh, divisions um, with robots, all these journalists were freed up to go and actually do better uh, reports on the big teams. And um, it actually started driving uh, digital c- uh, conversions. So they started selling subscriptions from it mm. or you um in there is a there's a, um, a web um, publisher in norway called bergens Tidene, and they have built a whole uh, vertical on their site about home sales and it's entirely populated with uh, automate automatically generated content mm. right and um the way that works well the with the reader and the ad revenue that they actually gain from that vertical it it far outperforms the cost of the robot content. So it really depends uh, on how you use it. At the end of the day, it's it's not expensive for what it delivers if you mm. use it right. I suppose that the, using it right then is, is kind of the, uh, it's the big thing to do there because it's not necessarily just as simple as, 
you know, in, installing kind of the, uh, the the tech within the newsroom and then just waiting for people to use it, you know, as part of the editorial strategy. So then to what extent do you have to build, kind of bake in this, the, the automated content into the editorial strategy right from the beginning, you know, even as you're looking at, you know, what to cover, where to cover? I, th- I think most, almost all the publishers we talk to now, they have, they have an idea before they even contact us. Mm. I mean, that's how generally it works now. Uh, and that's also changed over the last past couple of years. It used to be, oh, this like seems interesting. What can you do for us? But they have actually, they have identified like a need, you know, okay, we, we could really improve, um, like art and NDC did. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. We, we can, if we can cover 60,000 local football matches, it means we have something completely unique. And it's become part of their, uh, actually reader revenue funnel. It's free. That mm-hmm. content is free, but it, it drives engagement and it, it underpins their local, their news brand and the value of their brand. We usually, uh, we were mainly paper. Mm. And if you, uh, uh, and we have only, uh, how many editions do we have in the Northern Ireland? Maybe eight or something. So bringing hyper-local news doesn't make a lot of sense because it, Wastes a lot of paper for people who are not interested in that particular football club, uh, 30 miles away from their place. But now in the digital world, we, uh, we have websites where we can streamline the content you see, uh, and, and give it to you for, and, and, uh, and give you content that really fits your needs, uh, as, uh, for, as original publisher for people who live in a certain place. And we can mm-hmm. give you all the hyper local news about the, the football games played there. And we will not bother other people with it. So I think also that, that there's a big challenge for regional publishers to to cover what's between hyperlock, what's happening in your streets and what's happening in the rest of the world. And like Cecilia said, if we can really stand out if we cover hyperlocal events because big news media will never do that. And that's something that a regional uh, publisher can do and really can stand out with uh, in competition with the rest. See, that's really interesting. The idea that you can use the, this automated content and the kind of the human stories that it generates and that interaction to act as a acts as a sort of a selling point for, for the local media rather than the kind of the national media, which necessarily wouldn't cover that. That's absolutely fascinating, I think. I mean, that is, that's such a key thing for, for uh, all of the publishers in, in Scandinavia who are, um, who are selling local journalism. Mm. I mean, they have figured out what it is that they do best. And they actually, everything is behind the paywall now. Um, and... Um, the robots can be part of that, not in every case, but certainly, you know, if they can cover news deserts with uh, company registration stories or house sales or sports or whatever, then that forms like the feeling that this is something unique that only they provide. You can't get this information anywhere else. Yeah. And it allows them to, those newsrooms to do it with relatively fewer resources. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's the selling point then. <laughs> that yes. We could probably just end the episode there, but let's, let's keep going. And so one of the uh, one of the things I wanted to touch upon is this idea that there are some use cases that that still aren't suitable necessarily for robot journalism. I think Art touched upon it when he was talking about actually, you know, creating those those in-depth stories that require kind of boots on the ground. So then mm-hmm. what are still some of those, I suppose, is there an educational aspect, Cecilia, to to you, you know, going out to publishers and saying, Well, look, it's incredibly useful for this, but it, you shouldn't expect that it can do this. What are some of those limitations? The key thing here is at least where robot journalism is today yeah. is that um, this is about 
supporting the newsroom with the routine reporting, mm. right? This is definitely not uh, about uh, writing the deeper stories, which is obvious. Uh, I think that the also the regularity and the consistency of the data flow is important so that you actually, mm. if, if you have a one-off uh data like it's an election or something like that yes we could do that but it doesn't really add value in that way the the, the volume and um the regularity of the data and the stories becomes a value in itself and those are the strongest use cases i would say um where you really know that okay i can i can give um uh, mr smith in village x a story about something in his village going on every single day of the week that is the value. Or, I mean, we have, there are other types. I mean, we, we do work with nationals as well, of course. Mm. Uh, for example, in Stockholm, we have, a, there's a new site called Nyheter24. And for them, we run the, um, the real estate data against a list that they've sent us of MPs and celebrities. And so it will flag up uh, and write bigger stories about uh, anybody on that list. Mm. Um, and so that's like a traffic generator for them. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the volume and the regularity, those are the two things that really make for the, for the most valuable use cases. Nice. Okay. Fantastic. And, and Arden, that's, that's actually sparked a, another question for me, which is, uh, Cecilia then was talking about kind of that regularity of data from what you've experienced and kind of, and what you use kind of the automated content, the robot journalism for how much of the day-to-day operation is, you know, of the newsroom we've spent just ensuring that kind of the, the, the actual robot journalist is pulling data in, that the data sources are being updated regularly. How much of it is spent kind of monitoring the the uh, effectiveness of the robot journalism? Well, hard to say at this point, but I think it it, it, it really uh, is not that much energy. The, 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 the most energy is in, involved in just checking the messages and the mm-hmm. articles and seeing if you need improvement. And because it's it's uh, used with AI technology and stuff like that. You can, yeah, yeah. if there's an error, if there's a sentence not written really well, or you want some words not used or differently used, you can uh, put it in the feedback loop and then the robot knows, oh, I need to do this differently the next time. Nice. That will never happen with a human. They probably do it 10 more times and then you have to <laughs> tell them feed two more times and then, then it probably works. So, but actually training the robots to write to write the articles the way you really want that that's where the effort goes in and the rest well not always is is uh, is going without any human intervention but you have to make sure that the the connections are still working and stuff like that but that's that's relatively small amount of time and effort that's more of an effort from the digital uh, uh, department than it is from the newsroom makes sense yeah absolutely and that Again, leads very neatly onto the next question, which is: To what extent then can you can you use robot journalism in collaboration with AI to make sure that the stories don't become repetitive and kind of anodyne? I mean, I'll point out that um, uh, actually in our technology, um, variation is kind of built into it. The way our robots they dynamically design texts from the data and the data analysis. So it's, it doesn't use templates in that way. It, it's much more dynamic that, that, than that. Um, uh, and of course, the stories are based on um, data. That's the fact. So uh, those are the key things, really. And um, I, I can only speak to our own um, uh, technology. But mm-hmm. what we do is we actually kind of we involve the, the editors and the journalists in training the robots. 
So we're, we're trying to scale up human writing. We're not uh, building robots to mimic human mm. writing. So there's like a difference there. So we have a whole process of text iteration uh, every time uh, we start delivering content or uh, stories to a publisher so that the newsroom can be involved in saying, okay, well, this is not how we want. We want to generally have shorter headlines or we would like to, uh, this is how we write certain, the teams should always be written this way or even like the, the type of language used. Mm. So um, it is routine reporting. And so to a point you you want it to be anodyne in a way, because this is not humans writing, right? Yeah. That's not, that's not the aim. Uh, uh, this is, this is, um, predictability is key and consistency is key for this type of publishing, I would say. And um, you, you've, you've stolen one of my questions, which is, I was yeah. reading your, on, on the, uh, I was reading the, the blog and you said that, you know, it does allow you to kind of tailor the, the, the language that the robot uses to each outlet's editorial standards, mm. which I thought mm. was kind of fascinating. And that's going to set a lot of people's minds at ease that, you know, they, they can still maintain that. USP for the publication, they can still maintain that distinctive voice, even though they're using this tool, which is, as you mentioned, you're kind of providing, um, not on their behalf, but kind of with them. That's really interesting. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, and to, to, I mean, just to say that the value in, in this reporting is in the incre- incremental story, mm. not in the storytelling so much. Um, and then I wondered then, because one of the, the case studies that I've seen, which is really fascinating, is you're talking about kind of your sports robots Q&A function. Which is really, oh, yeah. so I wondered maybe if you could explain that a little bit because I thought that was a really good illustration of of what is possible. Okay, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about how we do it, and then Art has to describe because they have tweaked it a little bit. But oh, basically, nice. in Swe- Sweden, what we did so the Q and A function is basically the robot sends interview questions to uh, team coaches at the end of the game, uh, questions specific to that game, and um, via text message on the mm. phone. So then the coach can reply back and say, you know, comment on the, the match. And then that quote gets inserted automatically into the article that has already been published. Um, so suddenly you have like a robot written article, but with human voice in it. Mm. Um, now art, uh, and NDC, they, you're doing something like that, aren't you? With inspired by us, but I don't think it's completely enabled by us. We just started out with, uh, uh, well, can, can we do that ourselves? Yes, we can, we can run next to, uh, United Robots, a stream where we ask coaches, well, uh, what's your response? You, you won the match with three nil. Uh, what's your response? And we can use those comments in the articles. We send those comments over to United Robots and they use it in generating the article. But at a later stage with United Robots, uh, they told me, and I never thought about that, but that is also something you, you can automate is the, the question you were asking. Because mm-hmm. what we are doing now is a really static question. We, we ask coaches, you won this match with whatever it was. Please give us your response. But what you write robots can do uh, by using uh, AI technology, you can say, well, you've lost three times in a row. Uh, you, uh, uh, how do you feel? Do you still feel you are the right man for the job? From this team for the first time in 10 years, uh, what's happening as a club? Or stuff like that. They can go through the data and have an AI figure out uh, a really accurate question for that specific coach instead of having a static question every, after every match the same uh, same question every time so we're really looking into that because that i think that provides us with better content and then that's what we're looking for 
So uh, just the same response with, to get the same, you know, you know how coaches can be with with football and responses, you know, it can be very obvious, uh, boring stuff. But if you ask them the right question, you might be able to get some better quotes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I suppose as well that if you can get the uh, if you can get that automated, you don't have some junior reporter absolutely quaking in their boots, thinking about how they were going to ask the, the coach that that awkward question. So another benefit. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, uh, something that I think I, I was surprised by when I was you know, researching kind of what the, the capabilities of, of robot journalism in 2021 are like now is that it's, there's a lot more integration with the rest of the editorial products than just, mm. than I expected. You know, you, you think of robot journalism and to some extent, I know that some of our listeners will as well, as just a, a standard text article. But as you've just mentioned, you can get kind of that human voice in there with, with the interviews with the coaches. To what extent can you also integrate things like um, live video as well or other parts of the editorial content that you can sort of be pulled in automatically on a context-specific basis? So we integrate things like Google Street View images or nice. satellite maps and stuff like that for the, for the real estate. And we can generate, you know, um, diagrams and things like this as well for local businesses. Um, and we do work with some um, streaming video um platforms in Sweden that it's not about integrating the video it's kind of like building the text around video yeah, nice. because you, you know if you have if you if you have to deal with um, publishing lots of video you have to have pages for the video and so that's what we were able to do and we do that with quite a few local media groups in Sweden now uh, where the the we create that page around which the live streaming video or the clips of a match can can go so yeah there it's it's very flexible uh, in that in that way. Very nice. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've busted a, a lot of myths there, I think. And I think people probably have a much clearer idea about what the capabilities of robot journalism and automated content are in 2021. So what are you both excited about for the kind of the future of robot journalism over the next five years? Are we, are we excited about kind of wider rollouts, about anything that, you know, is going to be added to the tech? What are we sort of most excited about then? Um, Cecilia, if you want to go first. Uh I think actually it's like a it's a bigger question than just automated uh, content production. Mm. I think it's it's going to be about robots and reporters working together in the newsroom in many different ways. Uh, that's gonna you know it's it's content production. Yeah, we can we can really free up time, um, but the robots can also help in writing drafts if you don't think it's going to be. Uh, something that you can publish automatically or, you know, flagging anomalies in the data or, and just going through data and helping mm. find surface stories, of course, um, and helping with like analysis and stuff. So I think it's a, like a mindset of, of actually using robots, uh, leverage those capabilities and then use humans for, for what really you should never replace humans. Uh, with with robots for lots of things, you know that's not yeah. what it's about at all. It's a complement. So, Art, then, what are you sort of most excited about in terms of robot journalism and sort of within your own coverage, I suppose, over the next couple of years? Well, uh, there, this was a scenario we talked about uh, in, the, in the newsroom a couple of weeks ago. Is that we have a couple of reporters who are reporting on professional uh, soccer matches, and they are there at the game, and then. Uh, I don't know why, but for some reason, it's very important that right after the game is finished, as soon as possible, your uh, game report is live on the Mm. website for us. And things happen in the last couple of minutes of football matches. So that is really hard for them. Yeah, of course. So so what Cecilia mentioned about drafting, that would be awesome. 
to have a robot draft uh, on, on the basis of all the statistics and all the uh, structured data there is around the match. And right after the match is finished, there's a draft already there. And then the journalist himself can add to that the why of uh, what happened on the pitch and uh, leave things out if he doesn't think it's interested or whatever. But it makes it really easy for them to do better reporting and make it faster for them to do their reporting. So that that's one thing that might be possible in the near future. Mm. And for for the uh, future father ahead, like three to five years, is there's a lot of data out there for us. We, are, we write a lot about politics in, uh, in uh, cities here in the north of the Netherlands. And there's a lot of uh, uh, documents generated by those politicians and those governments and stuff like that. And if a robot would help out to draft or maybe even better, but draft uh, articles about what is decided upon, why it is decided and stuff like that. It would really make uh, uh, the work of journalists easier and even better because they have uh, to invest uh, not as much time as they need to go through all and every documents to find out that something wrong is happening. So if a robot can help out there and and write up some drafts about uh, some weird decisions that are being made by a city council, council, Mm. for instance, that'd be great. Perfect. So one thing that we always do on Media Voices is we always ask our guests to recommend one piece of media, whether that is a movie, TV show, a book, a podcast, absolutely anything at all, which they'd like to recommend. It could be fiction, facts, you know, documentary, absolutely anything. Um, I, so I let you know ahead of time that because I don't like to spring this question on people anymore, because it, it really <laughs> did scare people when you asked ask them to recommend something. But uh, Cecilia, what would be something you'd really want to recommend to our audience? Okay, uh, I'm going to recommend a book about death. I'm, mm, I'm okay. S- okay. <laughs> Cheery uh, to end I, I, Yes, I know. Uh, but like, death has been quite a significant presence in my life over the last few years. And I found mm. this book called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. He's a US surgeon and um, like public health researcher. And um, his parents are from India. And like this book explores how in the West, uh, death has kind of come to be, it's no longer seen as a natural part of life. It's become this medical issue. Mm. And uh, it's really, it was really an eye-opener for me. Uh, And I think it should be required reading for anybody who goes into the medical profession. Um, We could have better deaths, I think. Mm. I'm sorry, I don't... Well, actually, I'm not going to say I don't want to be morbid because I think we talk don't talk enough about death. It's not, you know, it happens to everybody. No, absolutely. That That sounds really, really interesting. That's um, a very good book. No, good. We'll check it out. And Art, what would be something you'd like to recommend? Well, it's also not something that will probably cheer you up. But uh, <laughs> as, since I work at the at a publisher, at a news organization, I'm also a news junkie. Probably mm-hmm. you both are too. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I'm seeing right now in the news and what's happening in Afghanistan and uh, what we are doing there also as the Netherlands and how we are doing things. It reminded me of, uh, I think, at the beginning of the, this year, I saw the Ken Burns documentary, The Vietnam War. It's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, nice, uh, you should nice. check it out. I think uh, it, it, it's obvious the history repeats. And, you know, we're just humble humans trying to improve the world a, bit, a little bit, but it's not always working out. Nice. Well, mm. two two really good recommendations there. I know that hopefully that a lot of the audience will be checking that out as well as sort of visiting kind of both of your sites to see what what is possible with robot journalism. So, to Cecilia and to Ard, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Media Voices and have a chat with us about this. 
Um, if our audience wants to get in contact with you, I'm assuming that they're fine to sort of reach out and sort of pick your brains around this. Absolutely. Absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much again. That's been a really, really fun chat. We could have spoken for hours, mm-hmm. but I'm glad that we've we've sort of managed to condense it down to a sort of very dense uh, session session of myth busting about robot journalism and a sort of look forward to what's going to be possible in the near future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So much.